I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me back to Matthew chapter 5 as we continue our series this morning on the Beatitudes. Looking this morning, we're going to try to cover two of them. We've been just covered the first two, we covered those individually, but we're going to cover uh, three and four together. And looking this morning at the subject matter, gentle and hungry, recipe for failure or success. Would you stand for the reading of God's Word, please? And as we've done previously, we'll begin back at verse 23 of chapter 4 to set the context. Since Jesus went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics and paralytics and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain and when he sat down, his disciples came to him and he opened his mouth and taught them saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Lord, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we thank you for how clearly you teach us the transformation that you desire in our lives. Lord, the Beatitudes remind us of how different we are to be from the world. We're not to think like the world. Or walk like the world. We're to be different. Lord, thank you for these beatitudes that very clearly reveal these things to us. And I pray that you would help us to be doers of the word and not hearers only. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. There's a story that has gone viral on social media recently, uh, as so many of the stories on social media do. People pick them up and just spread them one after the other. Uh, Some of you have even posted this very story yourselves this week and had a good chuckle about it. It was picked up last year by several news outlets in the United States and in the UK. It seems that the Jacksonville, Florida police picked up who they call a crazy couple for selling golden tickets to heaven to hundreds of people. Now according to reports, husband and wife Tito and Amanda Watts were arrested by the Jacksonville police for selling these tickets to heaven for $99.99. They told their customers the tickets were made from, from solid gold and each ticket reserved the buyer a spot in heaven. All the buyer has to do is get to the pearly gates, simply present the ticket and the doors will automatically open and they can walk right in. Police said they confiscated over $10,000 in cash from the couple along with five crack pipes 
and a baby alligator. A police spokesman said, people can sell tickets to heaven, but the Watts misrepresented their product. The tickets were just wood that had been spray-painted gold with ticket to heaven stamped on them. Police said, you can't sell something as gold when it's not, and that's where the Watts crossed the line. Tito Watts responded by saying, it ain't cut up two by fours that I just spray painted. And it was Jesus that gave them to me behind the KFC. (laughs) And said to sell them so that I could get me some money to go to outer space. I met an alien named Stevie who said if I got the cash together, he'd take me and my wife on his flying saucer to his planet that's made entirely of crack cocaine. He went on to say, you should arrest Jesus because he's the one that gave me the gold tickets to start with. I'll be be willing to wear a wire to help set him up. Now, folks, as funny as that story may be, it turns out that it was completely false and made up for this past April Fool's Day. The Jacksonville Sun-Times has come out and apologized for publishing false information and that they regret this error. They've said that they unfortunately fell for it and were duped by it as apparently some of you also were. Now folks, why would I begin this morning by telling a story that's not even factual? Well, on the one level we know that there seems to be an insatiable desire for anything that is bizarre. We want to read about it and and find out about it and have a good laugh. But you know what? I think on a deeper level, it taps into people's desire to read anything or buy anything that has to do with heaven. We're all too ready to buy the next book about somebody having some kind of experience in heaven. We're all too ready to believe their testimony. Anything that has to do with heaven, we're ready to buy into it because, of course, that taps in to the deepest desire of our hearts. Everybody wants to go there. Now that brings us back this morning to the topic of these Beatitudes. You see, in some people's minds, they have believed that the Beatitudes are simply their shiny gold ticket to make it to heaven. If I am meek, or if I am gentle, or if I am merciful to others, then I'll get into heaven. The Beatitudes will be my shiny gold ticket. Now, if that's how you interpret the Beatitudes, I'm here to tell you today, it's only spray-painted two-by-fours. You see, Jesus didn't give the Beatitudes in order to offer people tickets through the pearly gates. He gave the Beatitudes to point out the transformation that God does in a person when they're genuinely born again. 
And in the Beatitudes, we're taken through that whole process, if you will, of our experience with God and the change that He does in us and then the change that He does through us. There's a recognized progression to the Beatitudes. The first one deals with that new birth experience. I'm poor in spirit. I I recognize that before a holy God, I am bankrupt. There's nothing that I can offer to God that says, Here I am, look at me. This buys me entrance into heaven. I come to realize that I don't have anything. It's all a matter of not my work, but Jesus Christ's work on the cross that saves me. And so I mourn over my sin. I I mourn over my condition. I'm like Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6. When he finally saw God, he also saw himself. And he responded by saying, woe is me, I am undone. He mourned. And then after that, we see the continuing transformation God does in us. We're gentle. He changes our character. We hunger and thirst after righteousness. He changes our appetites, what's important to us as a believer. All of these things reflect the change that Jesus desires to make in someone's life. Now that brings us to the third beatitude. I want you to see first with me this morning the blessedness of meekness. The blessedness of meekness. Now the Greek word here for meekness means essentially gentleness. You saw the skit that the creative ministries opened up with, the fruit of the Spirit. If we were to turn this morning and read that passage from Galatians chapter 5 about the ninefold fruit of the Spirit, number 8 on that list would be gentleness. It's the same word that is used here when Jesus said, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. It's the word gentle. It makes up part of the ninefold fruit of the Spirit that God brings about in a believer's life. I want to first of all point out this morning that when we are meek, we are like Jesus. Remember Jesus' words in Matthew 11 when he said, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus said he's gentle and lowly. Same expression used here when he says, blessed are the meek. Folks, meekness does not mean weakness. We've got that all wrong in our society today. We think if somebody is meek, that means that they are a doormat and they allow everybody to walk all over them and do whatever somebody wants to do to you. And that is not what this word means. In fact, when you look at the life of Jesus, you can't find a a more uh, apt illustration of courage and strength. Jesus drove the money changers out of the temple and turned their tables over. He looked at the religious establishment of his day and he called them whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones. And yet Jesus is described as being meek and gentle. 
It's not a picture of weakness at all. Rather, the word here is a picture of strength under control. That's literally what it refers to, strength under control. And the classic illustration that is given of this is of a wild horse that nobody can do anything with and you bring in somebody who can break that horse and tame that horse. Now, after that horse has been tamed, has it lost any of its strength or character? No. It's the same animal. It's as, it's as strong and valuable as ever before. But before, nobody could ride it. Nobody could use that animal for anything productive. But now, that animal has been broken and its strength under control. That's the thought of this beatitude. That here somebody is out in the world and maybe they're an aggressive person. Maybe they're just, I mean, they're out there getting whatever they can in life. And they're sort of out of control in, in, in a sense of any, any type of control. They're, they're, they're just doing all kinds of stuff. And when that person is converted, Jesus takes all the strength and all the character of that individual and he breaks that person and he shapes them and molds them into a new creation in Christ. They're the same person, but now they're gentle and meek and they're usable in the hands of God. That's the thought here. When we're meek, we reject the concept of power that's in the world. You see, as Jesus spoke on the hillside that day, people, the people he spoke to were hungry for somebody to come in and overthrow Rome. And they felt like Jesus had finally arrived to do that very thing. Much of the history of the Jews, they had been ruled by foreign powers who came in and oppressed them. Think back with me a minute to your Old Testament. In 722 B.C., the Assyrians came in and destroyed the ten northern kingdoms that made up Israel. And from then on in the Old Testament story, those ten northern tribes didn't even really factor into the Old Testament narrative anymore. Then beginning in 605 B.C., the Babylonians under Nebuchadnezzar, they came in and they, they captured the southern kingdom, the two tribes that made up Judah, and they carried them off to a 70-year captivity in Babylon. And then after that was the Medes and the Persians. And you read the book of Esther and you find this wicked man by the name of Haman who wanted to destroy all of the Jews and God spared them. Then you come down to the time between the, between the Old and New Testament. What's called the 400 silent years. They were anything but silent. Things were happening. And, and during that period of time, there was Antiochus IV Epiphanes, the wicked Syrian ruler who so oppressed the Jews that they rose up in what was known as the Maccabean Revolt. Then you come to the time of the New Testament, and of course, Israel is under the control and power of Rome. And so through much of their history, the Jews had foreign powers who had tried to either kill them or oppress them in some way. 
In Jesus' day, there was a group of Jews known as the Zealots. They were willing to do whatever needed to be done to overthrow Rome and get rid of foreign powers over them. The, the Zealots had sympathies of many of the Jewish people. It's believed that Barabbas was a Zealot. Remember, they wanted Barabbas released to them instead of Jesus. They wanted anybody, even if it was the zealots, to help them get rid of the Romans. And if Jesus wasn't going to do that, then give us Barabbas instead. A concept of the Messiah had spread that when the Messiah had come on the scene, when he finally arrived, he would set up his throne, the throne of David. Immediately, as soon as he arrived, he would set up his throne. He would, he would overthrow Roman powers and he would sit up, set up his reign on the earth and all the Jews would enjoy that reign. And so they were, they were expecting that kind of Messiah to come to them. And Jesus is indicating even right here that no, his kingdom is not a kingdom that is of this world. He's gentle and meek. And he expects his followers to be the same way. Strength under control. Now make no mistake about it. In his second coming, he's coming again one day. He's coming again one day and it will be to conquer. It will be a victorious arrival where he sets up his reign and rule and conquers all of his enemies. Paul says there's coming a day that every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But that's his second coming. In his first coming, he was going to come as the suffering servant of Isaiah who would be crushed for all of our iniquities. They needed to understand that. We need to understand that today because honestly, folks, we'd have to admit that 2,000 years later, what is it that men and women still crave in their hearts? They, they have this idea of power, this idea of power that comes in and takes control even in a bad way if necessary. We still crave a kind of power that crushes anybody else who gets in its way. That's what we think of. And again, Jesus is saying His disciples are to be different. We're to be like Him. In 1 Peter 2, He said, For to, to this you've been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in His steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He was gentle and meek. And he's saying here, blessed are those who are meek, for they shall inherit the earth. We're to be like Christ. 
When we're meek, we also have a gentle attitude towards others. Notice in this third beatitude, whereas the first two beatitudes, generally scholars recognize that the first two deal with our vertical relationship with God. We're poor in spirit. We know that we have nothing to to justify ourselves. We mourn over our sin. In this third beatitude that has to do with gentleness, that carries over into our relationships with one another. You see, when you realize that you're poor in spirit, that there's no inherent righteousness in you apart from Christ, when you and I realize that, when you and I realize that we've sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and but by the grace of God in Christ we would have no hope, and when we mourn over our sin, when we come to see our condition for what it really is, It's easier then to treat others with gentleness and meekness. What do men and women in the world so oftentimes do? They try to hold others to standards that they don't even live up to themselves. But when we're gentle, we extend the grace that we've received from God to others in gentleness and humility. It's much like what Jesus had to teach Simon Peter in Matthew 18 about forgiveness. Remember Peter had a bookkeeper's mentality. How how many times am I supposed to forgive my brother? And Jesus gave him that story to point out unlimited forgiveness. And he told that story about the servant who'd been forgiven of like $20 million by the king. But then he went out and he got a fellow servant who owed him $20. And the one who had just been forgiven $20 million would not forgive the twenty. And Jesus pointed out that that servant did not have the heart and the nature of his master, the king. If we've got the heart and the nature of our king, not only will we forgive others, but there'll be gentleness that we extend to them. Because we realize that God has extended it to us. When we're meek, Jesus says here, we will be blessed. He said, the meek, blessed are the meek, they shall inherit the earth. Albert Barnes writes, the value of meekness, even in regard to worldly property and success in life, is often exhibited in scriptures. It's also seen in common life that a meek, patient, mild man is the most prospered. An impatient and quarrelsome man raises up enemies, often loses property in lawsuits. Spends his time in disputes and broils rather than sober, honest industry and is harassed, vexed, and unsuccessful in all he does. You've met people like that. The whole course of their life is to set on fire with turmoil. Jesus says when we're meek though we truly inherit the earth. Now there's a strange twist here. It may seem that Jesus is promising the wrong thing to the wrong people. Blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. It seems like the wrong promise to the wrong people. 
we would seem to go back up to the first promise and the first beatitude and grab a hold of that and say it would seem to us to be blessed are the meek for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Yes, we know the meek and gentle will have their day in heaven. But the meek and gentle inherit the earth. Nonsense, some people would say. And yet that's exactly what Jesus points out here. Blessed are the meek, they shall inherit the earth. The strong, the pushy, the powerful may possess much uh, of, of the world in human terms now, but as Jesus said, what's it going to profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his very own soul? It is the meek, it is the gentle that one day when Christ returns and, and He sets up that place that is the new heavens and the new earth, it is His followers who have His nature in Him who will reign with Him in the new heavens and the new earth. The meek indeed shall inherit the earth. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the gentle. In your relationship with Christ, has that quality, has that fruit of the Spirit been grafted into you? Gentleness, meekness, strength under control. If so, Jesus says you're blessed. Second one I want you to look with me at today. The blessedness of hunger and thirst. There in verse 6. Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Now this beatitude speaks of a strong desire, a passionate force inside the soul. Remember, it was the desire of King David when he was out in the wilderness. In Psalm 63, David said, O God, Thou art my God, I shall seek Thee earnestly. My soul thirsts for Thee, my flesh yearns for Thee in a dry and weary land where there is no water. David expresses that type of hunger and thirst for righteousness. It has to do with ambition and ambition of the right sort. And what Jesus is saying is our ambition in the body of Christ is to be different from the ambitions of people out there in the world. People out there in the world just desire things and, and are ambitious over material things. Things they can see and hear and grab a hold of and use for their own personal profit. The amb ambition of the world is like what the scripture teaches us in Isaiah 14 about Satan. When it describes how Lucifer wanted to ascend to heaven and take over the very throne of God. That's what he was hungering and thirsting after. I think of Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 4. He hungered after this empire that he built and he craved the attention and the credit and the pleasure from that. In both cases, whether it was Lucifer or Nebuchadnezzar, they had that ambition for the wrong thing and they didn't get it. They forfeited both. 
Jesus declares here that the deepest desire of every single follower of His ought to be to hunger and thirst for righteousness. And that's the only ambition and desire that is going to end up truly meaning anything. Interesting that He uses phrases like hunger and thirst. Deep physical appetites that all of us experience. Fortunately, you and I today in our culture, we don't experience hunger and starvation and thirst. If we miss a single meal, sometimes we think we're going to starve to death until we can get to that next meal. But it wasn't that way in ancient times. When Jesus said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, he was speaking to people who understood the pain of hunger. Most of them were day laborers and, and what they earned that day was literally the, the provision for their family that day. And so if something happened to a gentleman to where he was disabled for a short period of time, his family could end up in utter bankruptcy and destitution. Which was often the case. The Romans in 436 B.C. endured such a famine in their area that thousands and thousands and thousands of Romans marched themselves to the Tiber River, threw themselves in the Tiber River to drown rather than to starve to death. So they understood what hunger and thirst was. Jesus says, our consuming desire is to be to hunger and thirst after righteousness. Now what in the world does that mean? How do we unpack that hunger and thirst after righteousness? Stay with me because John R.W. Stott says consistently across the pages of the Bible righteousness has to do biblically with three different things. Three different things that you and I are to hunger and thirst after. John R.W. Stott says, first of all, in the Scripture, there is the legal aspect of righteousness. The legal aspect of righteousness. And he says, that's the aspect of, uh, of yourself when you're, when you're justified in the sight of God. When God declares you not guilty. That's the first righteousness that we must seek after if we're going to be satisfied. A lost man, broken and seeking after God, hungry for God, hungry for a relationship with God. Paul said of the Jews in Romans chapter 9 that they set aside God's righteousness in Christ and they tried to establish their own righteousness through the law and because of that they missed the righteousness of God in Christ. They missed out on this legal aspect of righteousness. You know, men will try to do anything to justify themselves to be righteous in the sight of a holy God, right? I, I've told you many times about that great reformer, Martin Luther. Ended up being a powerful force in the, in the Protestant Reformation. 
Hans Luther, Martin's dad, was so proud of the fact that his boy was going to go to law school and become a lawyer. But 1504 was a year of crisis for young Martin. He had two of his friends die. He almost died himself. He had a big dagger on his side on one occasion that he carried a knife and a sheath and and the way he bent his leg, it it poked through the sheath and severed an artery in in his leg and he almost bled to death. But it wasn't that that got his attention. It was a thunderstorm where he was nearly struck by lightning. Scared him to death. He fell on his face and, and cried out, Saint Catherine! Save me and I'll become a monk. Well, he made it through the thunderstorm. So he kept his word. He became a monk. He said, if anybody could have been saved through monkery, it was me. He would freeze himself to death. Endure hot periods. Starve himself to death. And he said, why was I trying to do all of this? I was trying to get God's attention to look at me that God might look at how good I was trying to be and save me. And reading the book of Galatians and the book of Romans, he came to understand that just like the Jews that Paul spoke of, he was trying to establish a righteousness of his own that will never work. And he read Romans 1.17 that the just shall live by faith. And he was like, ah, there it is. And he was gloriously saved. And he was a new man in Christ. He understood this legal aspect of righteousness. What was Luther trying to do? What were the Jews trying to do? What do so many people today try to do in vain? They're trying to establish their own legal aspect of righteousness. Isaiah 55, that scripture I read at the beginning of the service. God asked, why are you spending your money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Why do men do this? But they do. We hunger for all the wrong things. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6 that the Gentiles hunger and thirst after all the material things. What I'm going to eat, what I'm going to wear, where I'm going to live. Jesus said your father knows that you need all these things. You need to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. That's what we need to be ambitious about. Knowing God. Experiencing God. Coming into that saving relationship with God where we know that we've been born from above, born of the Spirit, born again, just like Jesus spoke to Nicodemus about. The legal aspect of righteousness. If you're a person here today without Christ, that's the first sense of righteousness you need to be hungering and thirsting after. Making sure your name is written in the Lamb's book of life and that only happens through a relationship with Christ. You can't do it and I can't do it. Stott says the moral aspect of righteousness is the second way it's used in the Bible. The moral aspect. This is after you're born again, not, not only a hunger and a desire to be put right with God, but a desire to follow Him in the sense of sanctification. 
The verbs here are, are, are instead, they're, 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 they're present participles. Blessed are the ones who are the hungering ones, the thirsting ones. It's continuous. In other words, even after we've been made right with God, we long for more of God as a way of life. We want to know Him. It's the passion of our life to know Him more. I think of Moses in the Old Testament and all the great things that God accomplished through Moses. He went back to Egypt. He, he witnessed all those plagues. God, God delivered the, Egypt, uh, the, the Israelites out of Egypt and Moses led them into the wilderness and he, he saw the parting of, of the Red Sea. He experienced God. And yet when Moses got out in the wilderness with God, what was his prayer? He said, Oh God, I pray to thee, show me more of thy glory. Moses knew God and he wanted more of God. The Apostle Paul in the New Testament the same way. And he speaks in Philippians chapter 3. He, he said after he was converted and realized that his resume wouldn't make him right with God. He said all these things I count as rubbish for the sake of knowing Christ. And then he went on to say that I might know him even if it means fellowshipping with him in his sufferings. Even if Paul had to partake of the sufferings like Christ. What did Paul want? He wanted more of Jesus. Both of these men Saved men. Saved men in the legal sense of righteousness. But in the moral sense, in the sanctification sense, they wanted more. That's how we're to be. Somebody has said one of the biggest problems we face today in the church, one of the biggest problems in the church today is people are no longer hungering and thirsting after God like that. We're complacent and saved and satisfied. The writer of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 2 asks a question, What shall become of us if we neglect so great a salvation? Think of that verse. What shall become of us if we neglect such a great salvation? Are you hungering and thirsting after righteousness? I usually don't do something like this in a message or I don't do much of it because it doesn't mean anything to a lot of people. A Greek grammar lesson. But I think it's important here. Because you see, normally after verbs of hungering and thirsting, you would have the genitive case. And more specific than that, the partitive genitive. In other words, if you were thinking in terms of bread, I, I want a slice of that loaf of bread. I want a bite of it. I want a morsel of that loaf of bread. I want a sip of water out of that glass. 
And that's the normal grammar. But it's not that here. Instead of the partitive genitive, it's the direct accusative. And, and the accusative used in the case of, uh, of hungering and thirsting, the, the essence of it is that we're to hunger after the whole. I don't want a slice of that bread. I want the whole loaf. I don't want a sip out of that glass of water. I want the entire glass of water. And what Jesus is saying is that's how you and I are to hunger and thirst after righteousness and after God. I want all of Him that I can get. I don't want to be satisfied with just a little dose. Every day I want more of God. Does that explain your life and my life? And the paradox is, Jesus is saying here, only those who do that are the ones who end up being satisfied being filled Stott says the third the third and the last sense in the scripture of righteousness is the social aspect of righteousness the social aspect and of course again in the order the moral and the social comes after the first the legal because the legal deals with get, getting right with God and then the next two deal with how we live out that life so a Christian seeking after the social aspect of righteousness in other words as we look at our world today what he's saying is we ought to hunger and thirst after a social righteousness in the world we see anything but that today, don't we? I think of Amos the prophet. You would think Amos the prophet lived in 2015 rather than in 750 B.C. Amos the prophet looked at his world and he saw people being trampled upon. He saw businessmen of the day using dishonest scales to cheat people. He saw corrupt judges taking bribes. He saw all the corruption in society of the day. And what did he do? He cried out against it and he called on people to repent. He wasn't satisfied to sit back, being comfortable himself, saying, you know what, things are okay with me. I'm not going to speak out against anything. I, I'm comfortable. I'm not facing any of that. I'm just going to sit back and mind my business. No, as a man of God, he spoke out against the sins that he saw. That was the prophetic voice. People in the church today sometimes say, do we really need to have that prophetic voice? How are we going to be salt and light if we don't? I was reading just yesterday one of the finest commentaries on the book of Revelation by Robert Mounts. And Robert Mounts in that commentary on the letters to the seven churches of Asia Minor in Revelation 2 and 3, he was quoting the eminent scholar, the granddaddy of all evangelical scholars today who's gone on to be with the Lord, F.F. F. Bruce. Mounts was quoting Bruce's comments about the seven churches. And Bruce was saying, when you look at those seven churches, five of the seven 
Jesus condemned because so many of the social ills of their day, they were not speaking out against it. In fact, some of those social ills of the day had even come into the church. And what did Jesus say? As F.F. Bruce points out, Jesus said, I have this against you. Folks, we dare not lose our prophetic voice. I think in a culture like ours where just this week we see body parts of aborted infants being callously sold. Shame on us if we don't have a prophetic voice. Two big stories in the news this week. People have been more concerned about Cecil than about Cecile. More concerned about Cecil than Cecile. We've got it upside down. Don't get me wrong. I love animals. But everybody's upset about the lion Cecil. We ought to be more concerned about Cecile and the organization that she leads, Planned Parenthood. We don't, seem to be, we, we, we don't seem to be worried about 4,000 babies being killed in their mother's womb every day, but we're all up in arms about a single lion being killed. I tell you what, in, in the world today, we've got our values upside down. Connie pointed out the strange irony to me today of the two, uh, this week of the two names. Same name, one masculine, one feminine. Cecil and Cecile. She said, isn't it interesting that both, both of the stories in the news this week, same name, different gender, and just how the stories are being so put out there. Everybody cares about one. Nobody seems to be that concerned about the other. Too many Christians today want to avoid speaking out against anything. And Jesus is saying here there's got to be there's got to be a hunger and thirst for some social justice in the land where we do right as a people we do right justice is done I think conservatives made a terrible mistake many many years ago many years ago you see primarily in the 19th and 20th century a lot of the more liberal churches and denominations, not all of them, but a lot of them, they, they, they forsook the preaching of the gospel. They forsook most of the main doctrines of our faith, even doctrines like the substitutionary atonement of Christ, the resurrection of Jesus. They denied all that, denied the Word of God, but they had to justify their existence as a church, and so they would go out in the world and they would just open soup kitchens and put a coat on somebody's back. Again, very good, very, very needed things to do to take care of people. But that's all they did because they didn't have a gospel to preach anymore. Conservatives said, in running away from them and not being like them, we'll go and we'll do missions and we'll present the gospel, but we won't care about physical needs. And so conservatives, I think there was a shortcoming about not caring enough about the physical needs of people in the world. 
It's been encouraging in re recent decades to see how conservative churches are trying to bring the two back together. Yeah, go and take care of physical needs, but while you're taking care of physical needs, also tell them about the one who's the bread of life. Don't just give them bread, give them the bread of life. Don't just give them water, give them the one who said he's the living water. And if we have him in our lives, there'll be that artesian well in us. Do both. And I think the church today is beginning to catch on to that a little better. Again, the promise, Jesus says, you'll be filled. Not popular, but filled. The deepest level of satisfaction when you hunger after righteousness in the legal sense, the moral sense, the social sense. Now, as we close today, think with me about the change needed to be gentle. Gentle is not our nature. Our nature is to be that untamed horse that I spoke of earlier. Has Jesus tamed you? Have you been changed? Are you a different person? Are you meek and gentle are you still out there fighting for everything you're worth or what you think people owe you? If you're a follower of Christ, ask Him to mold into you everything about that ninefold fruit of the Spirit of which gentleness is one of them. It's not, again, it's number eight on the list. Ask Him to mold his gentleness into your life. Strength under control. That you might be more like him. And then I also want to ask you this morning to, to honestly evaluate what your ambition and desires and hungers are. What do you hunger and thirst after? What you and I hunger and thirst after says everything about our relationship with God whether it's even real or not what do you and I hunger and thirst after